Welcome to Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holtzworth. Over the next hour, you'll discover how to feel better, look better, and get questions answered to bring out your own glow. Make sure to stay tuned for the whole show as there will be a Q&A at the end of today's episode. Now, here is Carolyn Holdsworth. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Glow and Tell. I am Carolyn Holdsworth here with executive producer Victoria Valinsky. Hello, Carolyn. Happy Thanksgiving week. Happy Thanksgiving week. Always such a fun week. And we're just going to get right into it because we have a really wonderful guest today who I am honored to have on Glow and Tell. We have physician Dr. Julia Kennedy, and today's show is really focused on prevention. And this is a topic that I know all of us care about because we're all trying to live the best, most healthful life that we can. And it's it's really about our daily habits that can create the most healthful, most positive, um, most comfortable experience for us all. And Dr. Kennedy um, has been a physician for 36 years. Um, she has practiced as a medical oncologist and is board certified in internal medicine, medical oncology, hematology, and integrative medicine. She specializes in the diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship of breast cancer patients and works with a number of nonprofits here in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. Um, I have known Dr. Kennedy personally for more than a decade and respect her immensely, um, in addition to being an exceptional physician with a huge heart and loads of compassion. She's also an inspiring athlete. Um, she's a marathon runner. I don't even know how many marathons at this point she's run. She's a golfer, a cyclist, and just an all-around super cool human. So um, please welcome Dr. Julia Kennedy. Thank you for that nice introduction. It's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. Oh my gosh. Well, it's it's easy to introduce someone who is bringing to the table what you're bringing. So, um, you know, let's start off. Tell us what inspired you to to become a physician and to focus on this type of work, Dr. Kennedy. Well, I, you know, like a lot of the young adults, I really love science and I found medicine to be the most interesting way to study science. But I became interested in prevention and lifestyle medicine because medicine and training really emphasizes uh, treating disease that is already established. You know, chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, obesity, metabolic syndrome, uh, fatty liver disease. And they just don't train us to look at the root causes of disease. Mm -hmm. So during my career and early on, I became quite interested in how can we not just treat disease, but really look at lifestyle and prevention. And of course, that's extremely apt for my breast cancer survivors because most breast cancer patients, thank God nowadays, you know, women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s are going to be cured, and they need to know how to prevent other diseases. They have a long life to live. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm really um, interested and looking forward to getting into that topic. And we already have received quite a few um, questions for you through um, our DMs on Instagram. And I do want to let everybody know that if you have a question for Dr. Kennedy, we would love to hear from you live. So please call us at 
1-800-273-5788. We would love to take any questions that you have for Dr. Kennedy. Um, and we're, we are talking about prevention of, of all types of, of chronic disease and illness. Cancer has certainly been a focus of your practice, of course, and it's something that I know we have all been touched by, unfortunately, in our lives. And it's something that I think, you know, deserves, you know, careful consideration when it comes to what we can do to truly ward it off as much as possible. Again, you also mentioned talking about how to prevent reoccurrence. And but it's not just cancer that we want to discuss, it's other types of chronic illness. So um, let's just dive right into that. And let's talk about um, what are the chronic illnesses that you feel are, for lack of a better expression, maybe a little bit more within our control through various methods of prevention to keep at bay? Well, I think what we do in the first half of our life really determines how our health is in the second half of our life. Mm -hmm. So it really has to, it really comes down to basics. And if I could take a minute to explain one of the root causes of a lot of chronic disease, the concept of what's called insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are aware of this, but sometimes not. And insulin resistance is when you have too much sugar in your system and insulin's job, which is made by the pancreas, which is an organ in your body, it's secreted to get the glucose in your body to go into the cells of fat, muscle, and the liver. If you're constantly throwing sugar, particularly the kinds of sugar that cause in, you know, high levels in your system when you eat, the insulin keeps trying and trying to control it and affect the storage of sugar into these parts of your body, but it becomes resistant and it can't do mm. that. So this is the concept of insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, diabetes. But okay. what people should understand is there's this whole cascade of things going on with all kinds of growth factors, changes to blood vessels, all different mechanisms, the way fat is stored in your liver. And when you look at all these things, there are various diseases that are caused by this process of being resistant to insulin, putting sugar where it needs to go. And when sugar is put into those parts of your body, it helps you have energy. That's where mm -hmm. you get your energy stores. Mm -hmm. So you get blood vessel disease, that's heart disease, you get diabetes, there's obesity and metabolic syndrome, and there's cancer, as well as fatty liver. So a lot of our chronic diseases are because our diet is terrible, in general. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying everyone's diet's terrible. But if we think about it, a lot of what we eat is high calorie sugar, carbohydrates, um, you know, white bread, potatoes, cookies, cakes, yeah. and, not, and some unhealthy fats. And I'm not going to say fat's bad because we're learning that there's a lot of healthy, a lot of healthy aspects to good fat. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Obviously, we've all been told since, you know, we were young children, you know, the food pyramid and and eat this and not that. And as we've been chatting over the past week or so, I feel like some of this information at, at this point, especially as you know, someone in my 50s, it's gone in one ear and out the other. And when I think about a healthy diet, I'm usually focused on, you know, more vanity based reasons to have a healthful diet so that I'm not, 
you know, overweight, um, terribly overweight at least. And, you know, I can fit into my clothes, et cetera. But to be very honest, full disclosure, I had no idea that that sugar was that kind of an enemy in terms of, you know, everything you just described. It's a little, it's a little scary. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of healthy foods that we can enjoy and, you know, beans, legumes, vegetables, you know, this concept of plant-based diet, or I like to call it plant-enhanced diet, where you enhance your daily eating with vegetables, fruits, legumes, beans. I mean, beans is really the healthiest food for longevity. And it's been studied throughout um, the world in various parts of the world where people live very long, healthy lives. That's the mainstay of their diet. And you can still have, you know, lean meats and poultry and fish, and there's benefits to all seeds Mm -hmm. and nuts. But the problem is, processed food and fast food has really overtaken our diets in the last 50 years, you know, since the 60s, really. True, true. Tell me about artificial sweeteners and even the ones that seem a little more healthy, a little bit healthier, like the stevias and the monk fruit and things of that nature. Does the body respond to, you know, the the saccharins all the way to the monk fruits right in a similar fashion to right. how it responds to sugar tell us about that it really it really does i mean it's okay. a fallacy to think that artificial sweeteners are safe with this insulin resistance mechanism i mean the other thing it does is it really heightens your taste for sugar mm. and it has right. a lot of bad effects granted we can sweeten things with uh probably stevia maple syrup, some honey. I mean, there are some sweeteners that have less of an effect than that. But to just say, well, I'm just going to drink diet soda. It's like diet soda is not healthy when it comes to this. Again, the reason I want to talk about the insulin resistance, this whole concept of sugars not being stored, insulin resistance developing, and then this whole cascade of inflammatory and growth factors, insulin-like growth factor, maybe causing some cancer risk, inflammation, causing problems with blood vessels, kidneys, arthritis. So the whole, it's the whole cascade of this that's responsible. So for for those of us, those of us that have, let's say an average diet and, you know, we do indulge here and there and we have our lattes with some sugar. Yeah. How how do we, how do we detect what our levels are? What's the best approach to determining where, where we are and where we should be? You can have, it's not done routinely in medical care right now, but there are fairly simple ways to look at insulin levels, to look at sugar. I mean, the, the easiest thing is to start with a fasting blood sugar. I mean, the problem is that one out of two or three people have a degree of insulin resistance. So it's not rare. And wow. again, it's sort of under the surface. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't develop all these diseases because it just happens. It's because, you know, this is how we live. Now, granted, genetics, family history, age or all risk factors. You can't change that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're born to you're born, you have your genetics, but they're not the major determinants. I mean, as we age, insulin resistance is more of an issue, but you can do a lot with lifestyle. That's how you can modify this whole concept of disease and insulin resistance. Now, lifestyle meaning some of the dietary things we talked about, um, exercise, moderate intensity exercise on a regular basis, trying to keep your weight 
doesn't have to be ideal, but try to keep your weight at a good range and not a lot of fluctuations. Mm -hmm. The other thing is reduce stress. And of course, we can talk about multiple ways to reduce stress and sleep and different things. Very interesting. I I was actually going to ask some questions about movement, about fitness. And because I know, again, we're all overwhelmed with data, right? We're reading things, we're you know, getting posts shared with us and and I get overwhelmed by all the information out there and oftentimes don't know what is legitimate and what is not. I have read that um, regular exercise, as you suggested, moderate level, decent amounts of cardio can help with how we metabolize sugars or help with sugar levels in select. Is that true? Okay. So particularly, and I will mention for postmenopausal women, you know, we lose estrogen and unfortunately that kind of racks up this insulin resistance problem because estrogen, you know, women, women that say, Oh, I can't eat what I used to eat. My metabolism is getting really bad. It's really because they don't have the insulin and that hormonal milieu in their body that used to take a little piece of that insulin resistance problem and put it at bay. So as far as um, regular exercise, I mean, regular exercise for cancer patients, there's been studies with the American Academy of Sports Medicine, looked at this extremely carefully and said, you know, five hours a week. And I mean, that's daunting for people with active disease that have other problems. So I do tell people walking, any movement is better than sitting. Okay, that was going to be my next question. standing in one place is not as good as walking. So people who say, well, I'm at a standing desk, everything's fine. It's really not extremely, it does not improve your metabolism or your ability to handle sugar and calories or for stress and things as much as just moving and walking. Okay. So, you know, I'm a big believer in like walking meditation, you know, meditate, obviously eyes open walking, you know, just using the like, doubling up on activities that can help you. Okay. Five hours a week is, well, is five the hours is sort of the guideline for cancer patients. Okay. Now I'm, I think that, you know, doing something on a regular basis is better than hit or miss. So mm-hmm. regularity, consistency is number one. If you can do 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and 10 minutes throughout the day, that's as good as doing 45 minutes at once or 35 minutes at once. The other thing that is really lost, particularly among women, is mm-hmm. resistance and strength training. Mm, so yes. we lose we lose 10% of our muscle mass every decade from the age of 30. And you need to really work at a younger age to maintain muscle mass because once you hit menopause, your ability to build muscle again through resistance and strength training is much more difficult. So if again, the first half of our life, if we could kind of maintain that muscle mass and it's just, you know, it's so important as we age for ability to have bounce and not have falls and all the other things that come with, um, you know, getting much older. Absolutely. Yeah. We've talked about building muscle mass, strength training, things of that nature in some previous episodes. And I think, you know, we've chatted about, I'm going to get big, I'm going to get bulky. Um, The scale will sometimes, you know, have a higher number on it because of all that. But those are all truly fallacies. And we're not paying attention to all of these benefits. Yeah. 
when you look at Dan Butner's Blue Zones data from the five or six places around the world that have the most centenarians, the people over 100, and this amazing longevity, one thing that's very common is they don't have a lot of chairs. They sit on the floor their whole lives and they get up from the floor. I mean, that's a very interesting squat. You know, you are basically doing a squat. So I like people who, I like the trainers and and different people that help with strength training that do a lot of your own body, you know, some lunges, some squats. You don't have to go and start lifting heavy weights and worrying about hurting yourself. I completely agree. Just resistance bands, just, you know, saying to yourself, I'm going to stand up without holding on to the chair. I mean, obviously, I'm talking about people that may be more aged uh, than more younger active people, but um, you can't take away the benefits of that. Yeah, Yeah. I I could not agree more. I think oftentimes we try to make it more complicated than it is. And what you just said, I think, is brilliant advice. Your body weight is plenty of resistance half the time. Mm -hmm. And just trying to maybe perfect that squat or that Mm -hmm. lunge and go a little bit deeper and be mindful when you're doing it because eight good squats, man, they'll, they'll do a yeah. number on you better than, yeah. you know, 20 wrong ones that yeah. with a bunch of weights. So I, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, I do want to remind everybody that we're taking calls for um, Dr. Julia Kennedy. Um, 866-472-5788 is the number. And before we go to break, um, I do want to let people know that we've got a a bunch of different topics that we're going to dive into today. Um, but we are going to be talking more about physical activity, how that's going to ward off illness. We also are going to be talking about how socialization and connection, that human connection, the heart connection, is going to contribute to a much more healthful, comfortable, um, longer life. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about sleep. And we're also going to talk about sun protection. So, um, so for now, though, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to be right back with Dr. Julia Kennedy. Give us a call, 866-472-5788 if you've got a question. And we'll be back in a minute on Glow and Tell. Check out the Voice America Variety Channel on Facebook. This is the place to share and read stories about and from our hosts and shows. And you can add your voice on today's hot topics. Like us and comment on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Voice America Variety. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Glow and Tell is the new provocative podcast from beauty expert, spa owner, and product junkie, Carolyn Holdsworth. The Southern-raised entrepreneur will share her unvarnished opinions on self-care and all things that are meant to glow, inside and out. 
Carolyn will be joined by guest experts who will go deep, and listeners will discover and discuss plenty about what they see and feel in the mirror each day. Questions and answers will wrap each podcast with no topics out of bounds. Don't miss Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holtzworth, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holdsworth. Got a question or want to share a story with Carolyn or her guest? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. You can also send an email to Carolyn at carolyn at glowandtell.net. Now back to the show with Carolyn. Hey, everyone. It's Carolyn. Welcome back here with Victoria Valinsky and Dr. Julia Kennedy. Um, we have had a caller that's been on hold um, while we were at break, so I'm going to go right to that. Looks like we have Emily calling in from Denver. Hi, Emily. You're on Glow and Tell. Hi. How are you? We are great. Thank how are you, you for doing? taking my call. Um, so my question is, I'm actually a breast cancer survivor, um, and I'll be celebrating my six years this December. I have a question just about preventing recurrence. I've heard from a variety of providers that I work with about the benefits of vitamin D and really just kind of having high levels of vitamin D in your system to prevent recurrence. So I just wanted to get Dr. Kennedy's input on that. And then also just kind of supplements in general. I mean, I know it's not good to spend a lot of time out in the sun to get vitamin D. Um, So yeah, just would love her input on that. Those are great questions and congratulations on six years. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's fabulous. Yeah, so um, vitamin D, vitamin D is um, a vitamin that our skin makes from sun exposure. And it basically is less, our skin is less effective at making vitamin D as we age. So we really, most people, it's amazing how many people are actually deficient in vitamin D. And they really should supplement. Now, vitamin D levels are helpful. The assay that they use is not perfect, and it tends to give you lower levels than possibly is truly as low in your body. But it's, it's helpful for you to take a supplement of vitamin D3 uh, in particular, maybe 2,000 IUs a day, international units. Um, you know, sun exposure for 15 or 20 minutes will help you make vitamin D. But we know that levels over 30 and particularly over 45 can be helpful with our immune system and potentially help ward off uh, recurrence of breast cancer. I don't think that in and of itself that in and of itself is the answer, but it's definitely one of the things that's simple to do, easy to tolerate will help your bones, tendons, muscles be healthier, potentially improve your immune system, um, and potentially help with cancer recurrences. You know, again, the problem is it's only one little cog in the wheel to help. As far as other micronutrients or minerals, 
Um, the problem is that we used to get a lot of good minerals from the soil where our vegetables were grown, but now all our vegetables are grown sort of with big companies and the soil is rather gray and nutrient deplete. So we kind of have to try to eat foods that may be organically grown or potentially from local farmers because the nutrient density for micronutrients and regular nutrients are, you know, tend to be much higher. So the two things I like patients to take are magnesium and vitamin D3. Most of the other vitamins you can get from whatever you eat. For some reason, partially because of the soil issue and our food not having enough magnesium anymore, a lot of people are magnesium replete too. They just don't have enough. So that's another supplement that I like to see people take. And that has a whole host of benefits. Um, and there's foods that have a lot of magnesium, pumpkin seeds and green leafy vegetables. And, you know, I could go down the list, but um, they're the two that I like. Other than that, it really should be personalized um, for you individually based on, you know, your health, your other medications, your previous medical history. Okay, that's wonderful information. I was going to also ask about multivitamins. And for those of us that don't have the perfect diet, you know, we see advertisements every day about just, you know, pop this pill and it's going to balance out what, what, you know, what you eat or don't eat. What are your thoughts on a multivitamin? Well, I personally, um, unless people really are not eating um, a regular old multivitamin, I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't think much of. Now, mm -hmm. there are women menstruating and women who've had gastric bypass surgery and women with absorptive problems and men that can't absorb things. So sometimes you need to take iron as a supplement. Um, I take a, um, a plant-based whole food sup uh, liquid, which is a multivitamin, has all the minerals, has adaptogens and some prebiotics in it. So I actually take you know, a product is called Athletic Greens. And a lot of people take it because it really contains everything. It's whole foods. It's from whole food sources. It's, you know, non-GMO and gluten-free and all that business. So, nice. you know, I've just done that as a routine. My diet is very good. And I'm fortunate enough to eat a lot of organic produce from our farm, our little garden, um, which is organic. So, but if you, you know, you just, I, I'm not against it, but I don't think it has a regular multivitamin. I'm not sure has much to offer. Okay. Okay. Very important information. Emily, those um, are awesome questions. Anything else for Dr. Kennedy? No, this is really helpful. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much for calling in. We appreciate that. Um, Victoria, I know as we were going to break, we had a couple of questions that we wanted to get some, get to and get some answers to. So yes. I'll hand it over to you. We do. So Dr. Kennedy, I have a question for you. This person asks, what are the best ways we can clean or green our environment? For instance, our homes, food we eat, what we wear, such as makeup, shampoo, deodorant, to decrease our chances of cancer. Well, um, there are some resources out there, um, and one is called householdgoods.com, and it's a government, uh, or actually .gov, it's a government-based website. There's also the National Cancer Institute, 1-800-4-CANCER, uh, and that as well is a nice website that talks about 
cancer risk and various items. Um, there's also a, uh, a young woman who writes uh, very good books. Um, her name is Jolene Hart, and she has a whole series of books that talk about uh, cosmetics, uh, skin, body, hair products, also talks about household goods and the various parabens, whether they have formaldehyde in it, whether they have uh, sulfates and other products that can be harmful. You know, parabens have been linked to breast cancer because they're estrogen-like compounds. So there are a lot of resources out there. Uh, I find her books are extremely well-written. I, I met her through the uh, nonprofit I work with, Unite for Her, but she's sort of nationally recognized as an expert in these issues. And there's also a, a cosmetic company called Acure who has information. Um, their products are touted and are uh, found to be, you know, paraben-free, sulfate-free, formaldehyde-free, and trying to get products that don't have the risk of cancer or uh, you know, uh, phytoestrogens or estrogen-like products in them. So that's probably the best place to source. Um, there's a lot of, just like food labels are sort of not accurate, um, labeling on cosmetics and household goods are sort of not accurate. You know, you'll look at a label on a food product and it says natural non-GMO, gluten-free on the front. And you're like, oh, and then the back, you can't even read the 25 ingredients in it. Exactly. You know, the glues and the dyes and all that. Right. right. So um, there's actually a good resource for that as well. Um, the dietary guidelines were just re-upped in 2020 to 2025. They hadn't been looked at since 1994 carefully with oh the old gosh. food pyramid. So wow. there is good information about avoiding sugar, salt, um, and, uh, you know, poor quality fats. Um, but the labeling issue is still a problem. And they haven't, they're going to try to have a red dot on unhealthy and a green dot on healthy. But the labeling is not great. Um, so you can look at some of the resources on that. It's actually quite easy to read. That's dietaryguidelines.gov. Um and there's also a website which I've looked at called foodbabe.com. And that's a very interesting because she's like the person that looks at all the labeling issues. And, you know, where do we think the herbicide glyphosate is? And where is this dye that's got this product in it that's unhealthy for us? You know, so it's very interesting and it's helpful. So for I those personally, I personally don't think that people should hone in on that as much as just saying, just don't eat the processed food. You right. know, don't eat yeah. stuff that's made in a plant, eat stuff that's a plant, you know, you know, so I, I think we get too hung up on what chemicals and what is this and that versus saying, well, don't use products like that. And don't eat food that is has been so processed that there has to be, you know, three preservatives and seven other ingredients in it to make it you know, last till 2025. <laughs> exactly. Well, so I, I have a question, follow-up question for you. If you can tell us, for those of us that have not gone to dietaryguidelines.gov, tell us how they've been updated and what are your thoughts on macros and well, you know, they, managing our but, diet through macros? 
Yeah, well, they're pretty good because they pretty much break down good quality carbohydrates, what sources of protein are healthy, and give you an idea of healthier fats. And they're your macros. So I think for what it's worth, it's actually good for that. I find it very, it's actually very easy to read. It comes in all these little topics. And, you know, it might be worth looking at if you're trying to decide, you know, how to adjust your diet, because it makes it fairly simple to understand what foods are healthier, what foods are not as healthy. Okay. Okay. Nice. Victoria, I think, has another question she wants to read from somebody who reached out through Instagram. Yeah. So speaking of guidelines, I think this is a perfect question. So this individual reached out through direct message on Instagram and Dr. Kennedy, they are asking for a patient with a history of melanoma, are there any apps or processes for checking moles that you would suggest? You know, this person says it's so hard to track changes that can be so small, especially with a lot of moles and freckles. This is a really I'm not in the field of dermatology. I deal with dermatologists myself, but the problem is that um, these apps use uh, algorithms and artificial intelligence. There are a few apps online that you can get on your phone, and some of them are like $40 a year. You have access to taking these pictures of your skin. And a lot of it is person dependent and how they're able to take these pictures. Um, but there are a few that some medical centers and cancer centers, dermatologists are using so that the patient can store their own pictures. Because it's a real, when, when the dermatologist, uh, not all dermatologists do this, and this, there's this controversy of this total body photography. And should we, you know, they take maybe 25 pictures and who stores them and what's the HIPAA insurance doesn't like to pay for it. And sometimes it's 200 to $400. So there is a real, I, my reading in this particular topic left me with, there's not a specific guideline about taking pictures of the skin. Now, I believe that it can be extremely helpful because you can look at the skin and someone can say, oh, look at this picture from five or 10 years ago. It, was, it looks exactly the same. Some people are fraught with all these small atypical freckles or nevis. Very hard to follow them. Australia has a lot of skin cancer and melanoma because of the sun exposure there. And they are doing 3D conformational photography. And they have studies. It's not for prime time yet. But it's very, it's very interesting. It could be more complete. It could be stored better in the medical record. Uh, the patients seemed to be, they thought it was reasonable, it, you know, didn't make them feel too uncomfortable. So I think it has a role, but honestly, it's really, I'm not saying it's in the wild west. It's just not, I don't think that at least for everybody, it's going to be something that we're doing. Certainly higher risk people, Certainly with a history of melanoma, mm -hmm. you know, I would definitely talk to your dermatologist. Okay. Very good answer. Speaking of melanoma, let's circle back to um, to prevention and let's talk a little bit about cancer prevention. Um, I know I've read off and on throughout the years that cancer lives within all of us, that there are certain triggers that can activate it, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, we've talked about diet just being, you know, vital, healthful diet being vital to ward off, you know, chronic illness in general. 
But let's talk about these these triggers, um, emotional triggers like stress. What is that doing to our body? And is that something that can really, you know, trigger cancer? Well, you know, stress is not a direct result of, okay, I had a lot of stress and my normal proliferating proliferating breast cancer cells are now going haywire and they're cancer. But stress is in that whole vicious cycle of insulin resistance because when we are stressed, our cortisol levels are not where they need to be. Our circadian rhythms are not controlling uh, and in rhythm the way they should for our hunger cues, our diet, our sleep, and awake cycles. So that's where stress can potentially down the road be a problem with why people get cancer. It's not the stress alone, but it's what it's doing to the whole metabolic cascade in your body and all these growth factors and the insulin resistance. And it's this common theme, Mm -hmm. but a lot of it, again, um, you know, stress and some, uh, you know, sleep, uh, things you can do with your sleep. Um, There's a whole concept of restricted eating, which, you know, people are into this intermittent fasting, but it's really this concept of restricted eating may help with stress cortisol levels and um, sleep and gut health. We didn't even talk about gut health, but that's oh, we will. Thing. <laughs> we will. <laughs> we will. So what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting? And we're going to have to go to a break well, here in a I, second, but let's yeah, start on that. Yeah. I mean, the person who published the most, in, the most concrete data was about 10 years ago, Dr. Panda. And his, his work really looks at time-restricted eating. And the Mm -hmm. concept is that, unfortunately, about 50% of people in this country eat over a 15-hour period of time. But to be healthy and to have good sleep cycles and to have uh, the appropriate hormonal levels of leptin, ghrelin, cortisol, you really should restrict your eating to um, 10 hours a day or 12 hours a day meaning that that's the period of time when you eat. So if you eat something at 9 a.m. and, you know, and 10 hours go by and you don't eat anything else after that, that's more helpful for weight control, uh, cortisol levels, your metabolic health, sleep. Fantastic. Okay. Such a big topic. I want to talk more about that. We will keep getting into this when we come back from break. So if you want to reach out to us, 866-472-5788 for Dr. Julia Kennedy. We'll be right back on Glow and Health. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Connect with us, and we'll connect with you. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on LinkedIn. Get the first word about happenings with the network, where our next live event will be, and what's up with our hosts. Look up Voice America on LinkedIn. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Glow and Tell with Carolyn Holdsworth. Got a question or want to share a story with Carolyn or her guest? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. You can also send an email to Carolyn at carolyn at glowandtell.net. Now back to the show with Carolyn. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Carolyn here with Victoria and Dr. Julia Kennedy. Just as we were going to break, we were really starting to get into some fun things about intermittent fasting, which... Everybody I know seems to be doing IF. Dr. Kennedy, they are they're fasting for 10 hours, 12 hours. I know people that have fasted 18 and 20 hours for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And people are doing it to improve gut health, digestion, reduce inflammation. And of course, most are doing it to lose some weight. But tell us your thoughts on that. We were just starting to get into that a moment ago about intermittent fasting. And, you know, what's a a potential ideal in terms of, you know, utilizing this time-restrictive eating? Well, the nice thing is that a more practical way to approach uh, intermittent fasting would be just looking at it as time-restricted eating. So, the and it's the nice thing is that the data from scientific literature and research, a lot of times in mouse models, but also in humans, is looking at how much time is ideal to get the benefit from a fast Mm -hmm. and anywhere from uh, 12 hours or more is probably ideal. If you can push it to 13 or 14, that's even better. I'm not sure that the information regarding these long, you know, days at a time of fasting has much to add to one's overall health. And as most people know, it's not really practical. Right. Um, if you want to keep active, you have to have some fuel. So it's it's kind of impractical to say, oh, I'm going to be active. I'm going to exercise, but I haven't eaten for 24 hours. Right. So um, I would suggest trying to look at um, eating during a 10 to 12 hour window during your day or I mean, you can't get there's a whole lot of issues with shift work and other things, but 10 to 12 hour window and then, you know, 
two to three hours after you finish eating, before you go to bed, it's extremely helpful not to eat anything. Then try to sleep for seven to eight hours. And then when you get up in the morning, you know, get some sunlight. That helps to get all these rhythms in place again. And then consider, you know, maybe waiting about an hour to eat and then eat. So that, you know, you're really eating breakfast, breaking the fast, uh, lunch and dinner in a window that's shorter than 12, you know, 12 hours. And that can be very helpful for weight, metabolism, energy, um, anti-chronic disease, you know, anti-inflammation. Your sleep pattern will get better. Your digestion will get better. may even help your gut microbiome. There's a lot of interesting data being looked at. And I think it's the wave of the future if people want to be healthier. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. And I love that it's not this 18-hour window that I know a lot of people seem to profess and, and tout as the ideal. I, I do have a follow-up question regarding breakfast and eating upon waking. You just suggested waiting an hour. Um, I know myself personally and a lot of my friends, it takes us a while to get hungry. And, you know, in my head from, you know, since I was a kid, you know, don't eat unless you're hungry is ingrained in me. I've also read a lot that, you know, we do need to eat in the the earlier part of the day, at least an hour or two after waking, because you want to kick your metabolism into high gear. You don't want to go into, you know, trick it and think it's in starvation. Tell me about eating when you're not hungry, especially in the morning. What are, what are your recommendations there? Well, I I would not eat if you're not hungry, but, you know, I would eat to say I'm going to fuel my body so that I'm not ravenously hungry at dinner time. Um, Like the old old saying, you know, eat like a king at breakfast, a prince at lunch and a pauper at dinner is actually kind of true. I mean, that's in the places in the world where there's a lot of longevity. I mean, that's how they eat. They really don't eat these big, big dinners. So it's really adjusting your metabolism. And it's interesting that doing this time-restricted eating can help get the hormones that are the leptin and the ghrelin that make us feel hungry, not hungry, make us have such these ravenous appetites for sugar. It helps to get them where they should be early in the day. Okay. So you you really set yourself up for a better metabolic and nutrition and eating day by trying to eat something earlier in the day, a little protein and some carb. Now, you, and some healthy fat. Um, and the whole concept of after exercise, you know, people say you really should eat a little protein. It's not a bad idea. It's a mm-hmm. good idea. It helps you it helps your metabolism overall. Right, or at least a yeah. little protein drink of some sort. Something but it's really healthy. not the idea of, oh, I'm not going to waste my calories, then I'm not hungry. It's actually setting yourself up for the rhythms in your body to be in sync. Because these circadian rhythms are not just sleep cycle. They're wake cycles, they're eating cycles. You know, we always thought of circadian rhythms as, oh, well, the, to, the, you know, the pineal gland and the hypothalamus all interact and the neurons, see, you know, they see light or they don't see light. Mm-hmm. But it's really more setting yourself up for a good day and not having like a ravenous appetite at three in the afternoon, right? Which a lot right. of people do, and then they oh, eat yeah. a lot of empty calories. Absolutely, or we, you know, we grab that diet coke, or we get yeah. a latte in the afternoon, or something right. like that. 
So let's talk a little bit more about sleep because that is something that certainly as we age becomes challenging for a lot of us. There are a lot of natural supplements out there to help us with our sleep. There are, you know, the over-the-counter things like Tylenol PM and, and you know, Unisom and, and products like that. And I know for me, sleep has been a challenge in recent years as my body's changed, as I've, you know, moved into menopause. What are recommendations in terms of diet connecting to our sleep? And, you know, are there some sleep aids that that you recommend? And and how important really is sleep in terms of warding off, you know, the chronic illnesses that we're talking about? Sleep is the time in your day when your body rests and repairs and restores itself. Um, not just the muscles and the joints, which it definitely helps. Um, it's good for your gut health as well to have good sleep. But the biggest thing is, and one of the leading causes of death is dementia and Alzheimer's. And people who don't sleep well have a very, have a significantly higher risk of dementia. So our brain needs to have that refresh every night. So that's why it's so important. And, you know, that's why people who have, for example, sleep apnea have much higher uh, degrees of dementia as they age because they've been not, they, you know, they, they think they're sleeping, but they're not. They're getting very poor quality sleep. So wow. that, again, getting back to restricted eating, time frame of eating, giving yourself two or three hours at night before you go to bed is helpful. Because it, again, gets your body into a better mode to, to go into sleep cycle. Okay. okay. I'm not a big fan of sleeping meds. I've seen them used for years and become, you know, literally give people 20 minutes of sleep a night. So magnesium is actually a very important mineral to have good levels in your body because that can affect your sleep. Um, melatonin um, was... Uh, sort of the golden child of supplements. And now there's a lot of questions coming out with melatonin. Oh, Is it really okay. safe? So I, I, the, I don't think the depth of this um, podcast can really cover that right now. And it's kind of in limbo. Um, I'm not really discussing uh, melatonin as a sleep aid as much as I have in the past. Interesting. Um, there's some herbal remedies, some herbal teas, which help um, sleep hygiene is really the main thing. I mean, getting yourself, you know, if you have to use a phone or a computer at night before you go to bed, you know, putting it on that nice night shift mode, you know, it changes it a little bit from the blue light to the orangey red. It's a dimmer. It's, you know, it's, it's much better for your, your brain to sort of turn off more. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously having a cooler room is a good idea. 67 to 68 having it dark if you can, turning off everything. I mean, these are just the common sense things that everybody talks about, but a lot of people don't really do. I mean, they're grabbing their phone in the middle of the night when they wake up and that's like, that's not good for trying to get back to sleep. Yeah. Um, yeah. I find meditation is quite helpful as well. Just trying to turn your brain off from all those thoughts that are constantly going, you know, our brain is constantly talking to us and, and it's difficult at night. So, you know, just getting some relaxation time, not, you know, sitting with a glass of wine, which is fine, and watching your favorite show on Netflix, but, you know, actually relaxing, turning your mind off, being in a quiet place. I mean, those things help and they're simple and they're short, you know, short amount of time. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we've talked a little bit before about the difference between relaxation and rest. Yes. And I think, you know, relaxation is probably something like the glass of wine with your Netflix program and, and rest is a whole other level. Yes. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. Right. Like true, true restful. And there's, you know, sleep medicine is actually uh, become a science in and of itself now. So there's a specific field of sleep medicine. Some of the people are neuropsychiatrists or neurologists, and some are pulmonary doctors, but there's a tremendous interest because people who don't sleep have higher risk of cancer as well. And again, it all goes back to this whole cascade of all this inflammatory cytokines and all this. I mean, there's a, it's very, very complicated. Every time you read about these things, you say, hmm, that's something new. They, they're, now they're looking at this. So it's not simple. But no. people who don't sleep well have more cancers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it's, the whole stress response and the cortisol. It's pretty right. simple. I mean, it all kind of fits into one package and there's, you know, we, you know, sleep well, uh, eat well, move. less stress, eat well, move, um, you know, keep your social connections with people, you know, um, will help as well you know absolutely i was just thinking it, it's you started to say it i'm thinking it's a puzzle it's it's all of these different puzzle pieces that we really do need to try to keep at the forefront so so we are feeling restful so that we are feeling a little bit calmer it's not just about you know what we're putting in our bodies or on our bodies so to speak but it's it's a lot it's 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 a it's a big heavy task for sure um, and with regard to the sleep thing, sometimes I've thought personally, well, it's better to take, you know, to take a little melatonin and guarantee a good night's sleep than not take a good night's sleep. But I guess at the end of the day, to dumb it way down, you know, it's moderation, I guess, yeah. you know, those nights well, where you're really struggling, maybe yeah, take some, melatonin but... is something that people probably should take regularly, at least an hour or two before they even go to, to bed. Um, to really work on syncing your sleep pattern better. And again, you know, my comments are made more for the general person who's not really struggling with sleep as much, Absolutely. but says, I just want to have a good routine. And this good routine is going to become a habit. And then if it's a habit, I'll do it the rest of my life, hopefully. I'm not really addressing, you know, a little Tylenol PM or Benadryl or these things. I mean, you can go through the list and say, here's the okay and here's the bad things. It's, you know, it's always certainly exactly. it's a, it's a moving target, like coffee drinking. <laughs> oh, let's not even start taking that down because I need the coffee. <laughs> I really appreciate some of the resources that you shared today. I'm just going to recap quickly as we wind down foodbabe.com is a great resource that you trust. Dietaryguidelines.gov, I believe, is another one for us to take a look at. Um, Jolene Hart, um, I'm definitely going to look into Athletic athletic Greens, the liquid yeah. supplement that you're enjoying. So, yeah. um, Dr. Julia Kennedy, I can't thank you enough for your time today. This has been so valuable, so interesting. And guys, Thank you for listening to Glow and Tell. We will be back next week with Daisy Gwynn talking about permanent makeup. This is going to be such a fun episode with so much education about a very hot topic. So until then, be well. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Dr. Kennedy, thank you. Victoria, thank you. And thank Caroline, you. It's a yes. pleasure. It's been such a privilege. Oh, my pleasure. Gratitude. Thanks, everyone. Oh, gratitude right back. So. 
Talk to you soon on Glow and Tell. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Glow and Tell. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. Didn't get your question in? Be sure to call in again next week. We wish you a wonderful week. 